Welcome back to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined this week by David French. And we are talking to Kristen Dumay. She is a professor of history at Calvin University and has written the book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. The paperback is coming out in June, so you can pre-order it now, or you can enjoy the hard copy as David and I did. This is going to be a fascinating discussion. Kristen, first, just tell us the thesis of your book. What is the argument that you are making? Essentially, Jesus and John Wayne is a history of white evangelical masculinity and militarism. And so it it traces this story through the 20th century, really focusing on the last half century, examining how evangelical ideals of masculinity have changed over time, how they're connected to cultural shifts, how they're connected to um, politics, and uh, really bringing us up to the present to show how um, evangelical ideals of gender are linked to broader cultural and political issues. One of my questions after having read the book was how much of this, though, is really the story, the history of evangelicals' relationship to masculinity versus the story of simply the right's relationship to masculinity, or maybe even broader than that, American culture's relationship to masculinity. I, you know, in my head while I was reading it, you start sort of in the 1950s. It obviously goes to the election of Donald Trump. And I'm thinking, Yeah. And in double indemnity, Hitchcock's bad guy is kind of effeminate, right? Because effeminate men were considered not trustworthy, kind of evil, maybe. And you move up to fatal attraction. Um, You know, the, the bad guy woman in fatal attraction, Glenn Close dresses very manly. She comports herself like a man and that's, she's the bad guy. Um, And, you know, to bring in David, obviously in any conversation, the change of Batman since I first started watching, you know, the Batman, uh, Arnold now you're talking my language. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, basically my point being American culture has been wrestling with concepts of masculinity for the last 70 years as well. Why is this specifically a story about evangelicalism? Oh, you're absolutely right. And, and that's kind of the, the point of the title, uh, right? Jesus and John Wayne. John Wayne was not an evangelical. Uh, so what we see happening within evangelicalism is this uh, influence of secular ideals of masculinity, of uh, a more rugged, uh, militaristic conception of what it is to be a man, and which then gets uh, kind of uh, sanctified as this is what it is to be a Christian man. And it ends up not just uh, transforming ideas ideals of Christian manhood, but ultimately, I argue, uh, the faith itself, uh, Christianity itself, uh, gets refashioned according to this ideal. Uh, But it's very much uh, a story of the interplay between secular cultural ideals and American evangelicalism. And and that's important to point out, I think, especially because evangelicals uh, tend to uh, have a really kind of oppositional um, posture towards secular culture, you know, thinking that it's it's us versus them and that what we're doing over here is religious and is biblical and, um, and we're against culture. And as a result, they're often blind to the ways in which their own conception of faith and values are deeply influenced by secular culture. And um, so that's, that's really very much a theme of the book. And then we can see how uh, affinities between a kind of secular conservative ideal of masculinity, the John Wayne model, and a religious version of the same end up creating alliances across um, theological differences. And I think that's what we see uh, really uh, in in American politics today, um, including in the Republican Party. You know, one of the things, um, I don't know if you follow Phil Phil Vischer on Twitter or listen to his Holy Post podcast. Yeah. Um, one, he had some, he said something interesting the other day and he described the way some people view Jesus is not the Jesus of the cross, but the Jesus of the whip. That is when he was, um, cleansing the temple and that that is sort of the archetype of Jesus masculinity. And 
that is something that I, I would have to say of all of the episodes of Jesus's life, I have heard disproportionately growing up uh, in first fundamentalist and evangelical um, in first fundamentalist and evangelical world, I heard more of, I'm not going to say more of Jesus and the whip than I did of Jesus and the cross, but a disproportionate uh, emphasis on Jesus and the whip. Is this something that, you know, that you're, that, that is symptomatic of this sort of larger issue of trying to bring Jesus himself into conformity with, um, you know, late 20th century masculinity? Exactly, exactly. So that's one story that gets quite a bit of airtime, you know, Jesus and the whip and overturning the tables and, uh, uh, you know, really acting out of out of a righteous anger. Uh, and the book of Revelation is the other favorite, where you have this warrior Christ who, uh, you know, charges into battle uh, with a sword. Now the sword's coming out of his mouth, but that's, you know, it, it's really presented as this idea that to follow Christ is to uh, to fight the battles that need to be fought. And, and so they'll talk about, yes, there's there's um, an eschatological pacifism. Jesus will ultimately bring peace, but only after he slays his enemies. And that's where we're at right now. And so we need to join this battle. Uh, so uh, Jesus and the whip and, and this warrior Christ uh, are, are kind of the favorite um, biblical passages that um, uh, proponents of this militant Christian masculinity will point to. But it, it's important to, to realize too that uh, it's not just the Bible that they're drawing on, right? And this is where popular culture comes in. Mythical ideas of warriors. Mel Gibson's uh, William Wallace for the movie Braveheart, a huge favorite. These are, these are, again, these kind of secular cultural models that do, as you suggest, end up reframing um, uh, understandings of Jesus and the Gospels. And so other passages are, are set aside or, or explicitly dismissed. You know, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, love your neighbors. You know, that's, that's that, you know, you can't really be a man if you do that. That's not, that's not what we're talking about here. So it really is quite blatant. I noticed in the book that when you're discussing masculinity and, uh, sort of these popular political figures, on the one hand, Glenn Beck stood out to me as someone who didn't really get a lot of treatment in the book. Someone who, uh, I mean, it's incredible when you think back of how popular Glenn Beck was at his peak. So I found this that said um, at his peak in September 2009, Beck's Fox program drew more viewers than all three of the competing time slot shows combined. Uh, But Glenn Beck is not a particularly traditionally masculine figure. Uh, he cries on air a lot, actually. He's a crier. <laughs> he did. Uh, he did. <laughs> and, and then contrast that with, um, you could pick John McCain, sort of a very traditional masculine guy with a traditional masculine military hero background who evangelicals didn't like. Even Bill Clinton, very traditionally masculine in a lot of ways, very charismatic, loved the ladies. Um, <laughs> And so I was curious what your response was to that sort of counter argument that actually evangelicals have been attracted to these non-masculine men like Glenn Beck, and they have rejected otherwise traditional masculine men like Bill Clinton and John McCain as totally anathema to evangelical culture. Yeah. So, you know, traditional masculine, and that's where we have to, we have to dig in a little bit there and see, you know, what, what actually constitutes masculinity? How is masculinity defined? Because it changes over time. It's fluid. Uh, so if we look at somebody like Bill Clinton, yes, charismatic and popular with the ladies. Uh, but that is not how evangelicals portrayed him, right? Not at all. He was a draft dodger. He was, um, uh, you know, he had a feminist wife. He couldn't, uh, you know, lead in his own home, let alone, you know, lead the nation. And so he certainly wasn't portrayed as the alpha male, not at all. Um, in terms of foreign policy, same thing applied. So um, whereas, you know, especially post uh, 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 Monica Lewinsky scandal, uh, Clinton kind of ha- ha- had earned this uh, reputation. Uh, 
as as a certain kind of uh, you know virile man, but um, pre uh, uh, scandal, not so much. And even after that, you know, evangelicals, it's really interesting how they responded to Clinton at that time. It wasn't oh he's a man's man. It's he you know he, he we have to remove this uh, immorality from from the White House and from our, our nation really. Um, but I, I think. Uh, Glenn Beck is is a really interesting figure, and that is a, a, a gap. It's it's I came back, and I thought, oh, I I, sh- I could have done more with him. I should have done more with him because he is really interesting. And then he just disappears. Um, so he's he's Mormon and uh, or a member of LDS, and and so there's a interesting dynamic going on there. Um, but the Glenn Beck phenomenon was. Um, uh, I think it still needs to be explained to a certain extent. It puzzled me um, as I was kind of watching it in real time. He does not embody this masculinity physically, certainly, uh, emotionally. Um, and at the same time, he had a way of kind of rallying this um, us versus them mentality and really kind of fueled into the culture wars mentality um, in a way that was, I think, transformative to a lot of his listeners and a lot of his evangelical listeners. And, and a part of this bigger kind of Fox News talk radio culture that um, just really did build up the, um, the militancy in terms of not trusting outsiders and um, the us versus them mentality that goes hand in hand with then the you need to fight because our enemies are, are, are so great and, and the danger is so present. Um, but no, you're right. I could certainly have investigated Glenn Beck more. And then he just, you know, kind of disappeared from the scene. And um, just recently I was thinking too, you know, we, we need to understand more the role that that he has played in defining uh, this movement um, in terms of popular culture. But to push on your explanation of Bill Clinton a little, you mentioned that's not the way evangelicals portrayed him as a manly man. But isn't that just then the question? Because Bill Clinton and Donald Trump actually had quite a bit in common in terms of their masculinity and evangelicals portrayed them very differently. Doesn't that mean that actually the the thread there that connects the two is partisanship, not uh, evangelicalism. If evangelicals portray two men who are otherwise relatively similar in such different lights, what explains the difference is, well, one was a Democrat and one was a Republican. Uh, so, so I guess I don't. I, I see them as relatively similar in in one aspect, right? In terms of uh, their their uh, uh, sexual morality, perhaps. Uh, but again, that was um, uh, not the dominant portrait of Bill Clinton in the 1980s, in the 1990s, up until uh, you know he was in the White House, really. So you had rumors, you had you know you had talk of that. That certainly was not his. Um, he brought a lot more to the table. Uh, shall we say, certainly than Donald Trump, reality TV star, did in 2016. Um, Bill Clinton was an actual evangelical of sorts. Donald Trump is not. Well, sort of fascinating. Well, let me let me let me jump in as being a fully a full grown adult evangelical in 1992. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) I I remember this very well. Uh, Bill Clinton was a pot smoking, draft dodging, feminist marrying person who couldn't get his wife to consistently take his own name. Okay. But that's, that's what he was portrayed. That's the point is that's what no, the right that, was saying about him. No, I know. And then flip it around. Donald Trump is a model marrying lib owning alpha male. And by the way, how dare you say he dodged the draft? He really did have bone spurs, Sarah. <laughs> and so the reason why the portrayals are different is because that's, you're connecting you're what you're doing is you're actually taking the partisanship which is there but you're filtering it through a cultural bubble that rationalizes and justifies the partisanship and without that without that i mean i remember that and in fact it was one of the reasons why evangelicals had trouble warning up to george hw bush which was so bizarre because he was an actual war hero who'd been shot down in the pacific joined at a very young age, I mean, in many ways, more masculine and sort of some of these objective measures than Ronald Reagan before him. And yet H.W. Bush has to declare, I am not a wimp. And, and has this whole sort of how strong are you question that is put to him in the, in the, during his first term. And then, so yeah, there was a lot of, the, there was a lot of denigration of Bill Clinton 
as a man that went on in the in the early 1990s and that continued in through Lewinsky because it reinforced everything that he's not a, he's not even man enough to be faithful to his wife he's not it was all wrapped up into this and the weakness of bill clinton was a constant theme early on it was the draft dodging the pot smoking the um yeah they and then you know and then hillary when she said you know i'm not a stand by your man kind of person and that just absolutely poured into all of this but yeah i i partisanship's totally a part of this because donald trump was a is a draft dodger who doesn't even really have the courage to fire people in person unlike you know you see in the apprentice but he's completely cast as the alpha male the trump trucks the boat parades how many times have we seen those ridiculous uh, paintings that are sort of meme like of him with rippling muscles riding a velociraptor you know i mean it's <laughs> so it's a it, it yeah no i i hear you sarah but as a fully grown evangelical adult in 1992 i know exactly how bill clinton was portrayed well kristen you do have visuals in the book uh, why didn't you include the donald trump rippling muscle velociraptor <laughs> picture <laughs> You know, there there are many to choose from in that genre. Uh, I thought about it, played around with it. Um, some of those are hard to source. And, um, you know, also uh, one of the challenges of this book was um, to to capture the absurd without making it a joke, right? Because there's a lot of absurdity <laughs> a part of this. And, and it was, I, I felt like I was walking a fine line um, between kind of extreme expressions and mainstream. And that really is a, a, a question throughout the book. It was one I wrestled with when I was researching the book of, you know, what stories do I include here? What, which ones are outliers? Uh, which are fringe? Um, and, and outliers are still, you know, worth, uh, worth, uh, paying attention to, but, but you need to contextualize them appropriately. What's mainstream here? And, um, and how do we know <laughs> where the center is? And, and, and I think, you know, the center was shifting even as I was researching and writing this book. So I had a lot of material, um, that actually didn't get included in this book. Um, and the original manuscript was 60,000 words over word count. And so <laughs> there's a lot that, that had to be cut, but, um, also, you know, images like that too, I thought, you know, it, it's, it's illustrative. Um, and, and many of those were not from, some now are from kind of religious spaces. Others are, are just, again, secular and um, they're out there. I think that that's certainly the context into which this book has uh, been received. And so uh, I think it, it rings true to a lot of what people are experiencing, what they're seeing in their own, with their own eyes, um, what they're encountering in their own circles. So um, one of the things that... Uh, when, when I was reading the book, because again, you know, it's funny, I'm, I'm reading the book having grown up first and fundamentalist. I uh, grew up in the Acapella Churches of Christ in the South. So we were truly sectarian in the sense that we were taught that the Church of Christ was the only church. Not everybody believed that, but that's what we were taught. So that literally my youth group of like 40 kids was like the only Christian kids in Central Kentucky. Um, but we were in, we we're part of the evangelical subculture, but not really. So I wasn't allowed to listen to Christian music. And so, you know, in, in a real way, Amy Grant was more subversive than Metallica. Yes. Uh, I'm not, I'm not even making that up. But from the beginning, I do remember a lot of this ambiguity about masculinity. Um, and you hit on something, I think, uh, and that is, Prior to sort of the, you know, the, the modern turn of the economy, there was no real question about the role of a man in a society. I mean, literally for a family to live, there had to be a lot of hard physical work done. And I think the whole culture, as we see from um, deaths of despair amongst men, uh, increasing achievement gaps in educational attainment among men, uh, you know, everything from uh, drug abuse to alcohol abuse, et cetera, et cetera. Um, a lot of people are struggling with masculinity at this time. And it's it struck me that what we began to see was uh, a, a an evangelical culture that was struggling right along with everybody else and not really able to reach a satisfactory 
sort of definition that was both Christian and culturally compatible. And, and I think the thing that is, uh, was a, a key inside of your book was that ingredient of culturally compatible was always there. That, in other words, if you're talking about what is the solution to our wrestling with masculinity, it has to be Christian, but it also has to fit the culture. And I think that if you're, if you're reading this with an open mind and you're a conservative evangelical like me, uh, quite conservative theologically, that's the key insight because that's not how we see ourselves, if that makes sense. And, um, and I think that when you see it, you can't unsee it is, is sort of the way I, I took from the book. Like I was, I, I emailed with you some weeks ago and I was like, I just watched a video where the, the evangelist came running into the room with a box in boxing robes with like Rocky music. And that was the intro to this very popular, very mainstream event. Um, so that's not a question. That's kind of just, <laughs> just my own observation. Um, but I feel like, you know, and that's something that I think it should be humbling for the church is to realize as much as they have critiqued the mainline, like Episcopal Church and others, for cultural conformity, in this masculinity definition, that cultural conformity was always part of the ingredient. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. And, and I think, I think you're right too, that once you have eyes to see this, it's hard not to see it. It's pervasive reach. And, you know, I, I, uh, one of the historians who read this in manuscript form, uh, kind of, um, one of the leading old guard historians of evangelicalism and an evangelicalism and evangelical himself. Uh, I know he was skeptical <laughs> before he, he'd asked to read it before it, uh, it, it went into press. And, and I, I, I sent it off to him with a, a bit of, um, uh, anxiety. And, uh, and I have to say, I think it won him over. And uh, certainly, uh, I really knew it had when in ensuing weeks after he had yeah, sent it back, sent it back with comments. And, uh, and then I just kept getting emails of him sending, hey, look what I just saw. Look what I just came across. You know, look, uh, I think it was Al Mohler has a list of, you know, 10, 10 books uh, to read for ministry, and eight of them had to do with the military or things like that, you know, and I, I kind of I'm paraphrasing there. So don't don't quote me on that. But, uh, you know, essentially like once you have eyes to see and then the images and i think another thing that that this book did is because it's it's uh it's really a history of evangelical popular culture right and so it's not just what's happening in seminaries just not just the more elite conversations but really what's the evangelicalism that ordinary believers encounter in their day-to-day -day lives. And that's where the book has resonated so deeply with so many evangelical men. So I get stories, you know, multiple uh, messages every single day and so many videos and images and, and especially the memories of this was my story, right? This was what I encountered. And so many Christian men who deeply, you know, cared about being faithful Christians ran up against these ideals and found that they fell short. And then they had to make a choice. You know, what do we do here? And for some, it was it was leaving the church. For others, it was feeling like a second-class uh, citizen, second-class Christian. Um, and, and, and for some, it was buying in. And it was, you know, get, either trying to be the alpha man or else, you know, supporting the alpha men in their, in their midst. And so it's been really fascinating to hear um, the personal reflections on how, how so many lives kind of map onto this, this broader story. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So you do this really wonderful job tracing sort of the history of evangelical culture, but, uh, and you note this, John Wayne, Barry Goldwater, Phyllis Schlafly, Rush Limbaugh, Bill O'Reilly, all of these people with really outsized influence over evangelical culture, none of whom identify as evangelical, uh, but all of whom identify as Republican. And later in the book, 
you mentioned that uh, 75% of evangelicals approved of Donald Trump in office. I think it was roughly 2017 that that poll was taken. I think this was a Pew poll um, that I really dove into as well. Uh, That 75% was twice as high as the average American. But that includes Democrats. And in fact, 75% wasn't very high compared to identifying as a Republican. And when we look at the largest predictor, the biggest predictor of support for Donald Trump, it's not religion, it's not church attendance, it's not income, it's not education. It's, at least in one poll, it was uh, an answer to a question about authoritarianism. And so uh, two questions for you. One, is this conversation really more about republicanism than it is about evangelicalism? Like if that's the better predictor and two, if not republicanism or maybe tied to republicanism, I mean, we have the term religious, right? Right. Like that, that term has existed sitting above maybe the evangelical conversation, even, um, maybe more than masculinity. Is this an affinity within the religious right to authoritarianism? Yes, and yes, and yes, I would say about, but um, as a historian, uh, what I would want to uh, suggest is what is republicanism that, you know, and what is the role of evangelicalism in shaping republicanism and vice versa, right? These categories don't really exist uh, in, 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 you know, distinct one from the other. That doesn't mean that they overlap entirely, but, you know, history is going to show us how much evangelicalism helped shape the current Republican Party that we have, even as we can see how other Republicans, you know, we can talk Barry Goldwater and we can, and certainly Phyllis Schlafly, how much uh, they ended up influencing uh, evangelicalism itself. I mean, so even take somebody like Phyllis Schlafly, a conservative Catholic, um, but she really helped articulate this, this whole framework of connecting gender and authority and foreign policy together, right, in the 60s and becomes incredibly influential um, kind of generally at, at, at the upper levels of, you know, the religious right. But then she also uh, influences Beverly LaHaye in profound ways. And Beverly LaHaye, here, right here, we have the story of an evangelical woman who, who uh, um, ends up, um, you know, writing all kinds of evangelical literature, this popular literature, you know, organization, um, Concerned Women for America, and and ends up just, um, you know, deeply shaping evangelical ideals of biblical womanhood, of Christian womanhood. And, and so the politics and the faith are so intertwined. And that's what I try to um, really pull through those threads and see how, how the influence really does go back and forth. Um, so it's about Republican politics. It's about evangelicalism. And again, the overlap is not 100%. We can talk about the 19%, if you will. We can talk about the evangelical left. We can talk about moderates. We can talk about degrees to which people buy into this. Um, but then you, you bring up authoritarianism, and, and I do want to talk about that because one of the most surprising things in um, my research for this book was the question of the, the prominence of, of authority um, and, and the extent to which evangelicals seem to be um, almost obsessed with this question of authority going back to the 1960s and 70s. Uh, and so when I was reading... Um, uh, uh, Bill Gothard, for example, is a very key key um, um, proponent of this. Now, Bill Gothard, I will say, when I initially sketched out this book um, proposal and when I initially started writing, I had no plans to include Bill Gothard. Right? He's so extreme, so far right. He's one of those guys that you just you know kind of roll your eyes at and say, "Well, thank goodness that wasn't you know <laughs> that wasn't my experience." And then as I was as I was interviewing people and talking with other scholars. I I heard so many say to me on a personal level, you are going to talk about Bill Gothard, right? And then they'll tell their own stories of how uh, his teachings influenced their own families. So I thought, okay, maybe I have to look at Bill Gothard. And when I did, I was, you know, kind of horrified, this very, very hierarchical, um, you know, gendered order of authority, um, um, deeply problematic in my opinion. And then I I went over and I looked at James Dobson, you know, uh, undeniably mainstream. And and I saw how they were asking the same questions, right? In this, uh, like this time of of unrest, of social unrest, coming out of the 1960s, the anti-war movement, civil rights movement, like where is 
authority located. And the answers they provided were remarkably similar. And the more I looked at it, the more I I came to see that there are some strong anti-democratic impulses running through evangelicalism itself, not just this kind of external, you know, this is what Republicans do, this is what, um, you know, secular uh, conservatives say, but deep within evangelical culture itself. And um, that finds expression in terms of gender, because gender is kind of the most basic uh, relationship of of social hierarchy for many evangelicals, um, but more broadly, the way they understand society as well. So that was very much a theme that I wasn't expecting to find, but I ended up tracing it throughout the book. So strong connections between evangelicalism, conservative evangelicalism, and um, tendencies toward authoritarianism. You know, one of the things, um, one of the things about the Trump era, I think, uh, is that it really, just speaking sort of frankly from where I am at this moment, it really exposed to to the extent to which, as Ryan Burge says, he's sort of this fabulous statistician of American religion. Hey, follow him on Twitter, seriously, and you will be deluged yes. with probably five <laughs> awesome. fascinating charts per day. <laughs> but he says this really interesting thing, and when you, it's a, another one of these insights that once you see it, you can't unsee it, and that is white evangelicalism is republicanism republicanism is white evangelicalism. And when he's saying that, he's talking about self-identified evangelicals. In other words, not necessarily somebody who's going to agree with all four parts of the evangelical quadrilateral or the seven or nine part Barna test, but people who say, I'm an evangelical. And that this is a very distinct community that is growing up that is completely intertwined with the Republican Party and now beginning to adopt outlier political positions that are that one would not say flow from the Bible naturally. So, for example, uh, somebody would say, "Well, wait a minute. If I'm an evangelical in politics, it's because I'm pro-life." Okay, fair. That's one of the reasons why I spent most of my life as a Republican. I'm pro-life. But what is a greater predictor of evangelical support for Donald Trump? Immigration. Immigration was a greater predictor. Um, evangelicals are outliers on, for example, police brutality issues. They're outliers on expressing less concern for racial division in this country. None of those things are natural and inevitable products of reading the Bible. Now, they're contestable issues that people in good faith can disagree on, but to have an overwhelming conclusion that drives, there's an overwhelming conclusion that one distinct Christian community has that at the one t- it is simultaneously deeply partisan and believing it is deeply separate from the culture that's you know again this isn't a question this is a rant that that is and in fact you know if you read my sunday newsletter that's a constant theme of my newsletter which is this wrapping of secular partisanship into religion has had a real consequence. And on the masculinity front, and it's been a few weeks since I finished the book, and I can't remember if you, I don't think you put this in there, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in American Sniper, the Chris Chris Kyle character is offered a choice. Are you a sheep? And the the dad says, I ain't raising no sheep. Um, Are you a wolf? In other words, that devours the sheep. Are you a sheepdog, the protector, the protector? And I always grew up in, I had heard that for decades, that that sort of trinity of three types of manhood. And I had always identified that the a Christian man, if you're going to reduce it to that simple thing, is the sheepdog. That's the person who's protective. Like in in the best of evangelical Cold War, Cold Warring was protective of this culture against an aggressor uh, communism that was Soviet communism was evil. And then along comes Donald Trump and he's a wolf. Like he's the paradigm of the wolf. And the evangelical community fell in with him at a level exceeding the way they fell in with Romney, with Bush, uh, with McCain, with Bush, (laughs) with, with Reagan. And I, 
that to me, that's when I was thinking, that's when you, everyone began searching for answers. Why, why, why? And to me, that's why it seems to me, you know, that's when your book met the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that language of protector can be a little slippery too, right? Like you said, you know, in its best sense, it can mean one thing. Uh, and in the Cold War context, uh, it was, you know, a, a man is, is protector and provider, but then protector, you know, in the context of the Cold War really um, kind of steps up in significance. But because it's in the context of the Cold War, uh, that's not just kind of metaphorical. It is, it's, you know, a protector, it's 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 quite explicit. You need to protect the United States from this military threat, and so we need to raise our little boys to be strong men, so that they can go fight on the battlefields of Vietnam effectively, right? And so it does it does. Um, it's more than just kind of sheepdog, and you can see in the rhetoric how um, over time this notion of protector shifts from a, a defensive mode primarily into. Uh, offensive. So the best defense is an aggressive offense. And, and you can see this also in, in rhetoric around just war um, or, or just war uh, that, um, you know, preemptive war. Uh, talk about evangelicals uh, being outliers in terms of survey data, right? Evangelical support for the Iraq war, for preemptive war in general, for condoning the use of torture, right? We see all of this and you can see in their popular literature and in their justifications for aggressive foreign policy, this notion of, uh, look, enemies abound. You got to get out in front of them. I mean, use use examples like you don't want to wait for the the rapist to be attacking your wife, do you? No, of course not. You got to go beat him up before he comes into your house, right? And so this notion of protector ends up kind of morphing into aggressor, but the language still has this this kind of moral veneer to it. I want to talk about also how feminism has evolved within the evangelical movement and within the history that you trace in your book. Because when I think about, um, you know, mega churches, et cetera, a lot of that is driven by the women in the church attendance. I mean, it's a joke, right? That like these women are dragging their boyfriends or their husbands to church. <laughs> it's not the men driving, uh, attendance at these places. The women, therefore, if they're driving it are also the main consumers of this brand of, of what the feminine ideal is. And so it seems to me a little too simplistic to say like, well, it's this abusive masculinity that's forcing these women to stay home and bake cookies and raise kids and wear aprons or whatever. The women are the consumers of it. And you mentioned some of the books that were incredibly popular at the time. Um, my, my favorite of course is the, you know, dressing up in, you know, a cheetah leotard with bangles and makeup when he comes home. And like, you should have a different costume every day to come inside. Um, and that that is how you keep a man interested. But at the same time, that's absurd, but there's something to it. You know, if you're like dowdy and unpleasant, uh, yeah, that is going to cause some marital discord for sure. And uh, so I wondered if you would talk a little bit about how you traced the femininity within the evangelical movement as well. No, you're, I mean, you're right. Women are primary consumers of evangelical popular culture and evangelical literature on gender roles. And, uh, and it's, it's a massive industry. And I, I have a chapter on that uh, focused on the 60s and 70s as kind of setting the foundation for this, uh, this evangelical literature on Christian womanhood, on proper evangelical femininity. Um, so you need to be beautiful. You need to be sexy. And that's really important because uh, of the evangelical notion of, of sexuality that men are filled with testosterone and God made men and women just so distinct opposites, right? And so men are filled with lust. Um, this is just kind of how God made them and they have very high sexual needs. Um, but we need a moral society and that's where heterosexual marriage comes in and that's where women's restraint comes in. So it's, it's really on women to protect uh, purity 
and social morality. Um, and they do that by being very modest if they're not married uh, uh, and not tempting men, again, um, who, who tend towards lust. Um, but then you get married and then that solves this problem, but it only works if women, if wives are able to meet their husband's sexual needs, right? And that's where beauty is really important. You have to, you have to keep up your curb appeal. Uh, you need to seduce your husband and you need to prop up his ego um, by meeting his sexual needs and letting him know that he is also desired. And what was really striking, first of all, evangelicals talk a lot about sex, right? Don't, don't buy into any of this prudish kind of stereotype. Um, they write a lot and read a lot about sex in very graphic terms, it turns out. Um, but uh, but the this this relationship of 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 power is is very present, and the the notion that uh, um, you know wives' duties to meet their husbands' needs, which um, can produce some rather alarming results, uh, it, which is is certainly something that I I trace through the story as well of a, a wife's obligation. Uh, to meet her husband's uh, demands. Um, so sexuality is kind of a side topic, but one that is relevant. But this ideal of femininity, what I try to show is that it did meet women's needs to a certain extent, right? That many women, this is in the 60s and 70s, um, were deeply unhappy, dissatisfied. And Betty Friedan offered one pathway towards liberation. Go achieve, you know, <laughs> claim your equality, go out into the workforce. For many women, that was useless. It was insulting, right? They had already kind of um, made their choices. Many didn't have a college education. Many didn't have any employment prospects. Many were at home with three or four kids um, and they were miserable. And so, you know, somebody like Maribel Morgan comes along and says, yes, I get it. We're all miserable. Here's what you can do to change things, right? You know, be sweet, meet your husband's needs. Just, just do it, give it a try and he'll be nicer to you. And for many, they found that was a better path out of their misery. Um, and then many like Elizabeth Elliot uh, is another example, um, very popular writer for Christian women at the time. They, they packaged and sold this as biblical womanhood, right? And so many women too, just really do want to be faithful Christian women. And this was the blueprint that was handed to them. Um, now that said, um, the evangelical ideals of womanhood, that foundation of femininity and, and um, sexual um, attractiveness and submission does stretch and continue into the present, but it evolves in really interesting ways. And I did not have space to tell that story in this book. I, I kind of, you know, let that go as I move into the 2000s and get to Trump and so on. But there is a whole other story there, which is actually the topic of my next book. So I, I do hope to tell the rest of that story. It's called Live, Laugh, Love, and it's a cultural history of white Christian womanhood over roughly the same period. Oh, that I am very here for. And because you mentioned, for instance, Rachel Held Evans and some of these um very evangelical, very prominent women within the movement who become countercultural in terms of their own brand of feminism and are pretty much kicked out of the movement to the extent one can be kicked out of something that doesn't really have borders. Uh, and it's over LGBTQ rights. It's over immigration. It's over these things that, um, as David said, uh, there's some there's some biblical things on both sides, let's say, it, but there's not like one true orthodoxy necessarily. And yet within the evangelical movement right now or culturally there is. And where women in particular, I think um, it's fascinating because I think you can see that in a lot of different movements. Uh, I've, I've pointed this out that in the White House press corps, when women first started asking questions to the press secretary at the podium, they were the ones most likely to ask the obvious question that nobody had bothered to ask because women were sort of in but not of that culture. And so to have women within the evangelical movement be the ones to raise their hands and say, well, actually, like I'm reading the Bible too, and this is weird because it seems like kind of the opposite on immigration. Um, it doesn't surprise me at all that that comes from women. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, so you can, you can find those voices of dissent, uh, certainly. So you mentioned Rachel Held Evans, you know, Jen Hatmaker also very prominently, um, uh, uh, kind of came out in favor of LGBTQ rights. Um, you know, somebody like Beth Moore is of course fascinating to watch too, and her role over the last, um, uh, five years, um, as a, as a voice of dissent within evangelicalism. Uh, but then you also have a lot of evangelical women who are propping up this ideology, right. Who are, um, you know, either politically or often just on, you know, religiously and, and personally. Um, and, and here too, if you look at evangelical femininity, you can see um, really fascinating connections between secular ideals of femininity, particularly kind of post-feminist ideals. Um, so in terms of beauty, in terms of a very, um, uh, at least feminists would say, a very shallow uh, sense of empowerment, right? And you're talking about kind of mommy blogs and HGTV and Hallmark movies and all of that. There, there are Christian roots to this, uh, but it also is now has morphed into this broadly kind of white generic Christian slash secular ideals of womanhood. It's really fascinating, which also has um, a lot of political influence if you look for it. So in the in the closing minutes, I want to get at the one area I hinted at it a little bit in my uh, uh, Sunday review, the point where I think we disagree. And, and here's where it is. So here's the point where I think we disagree. So I'm uh, uh, very, I'm, as I said earlier, and this will be, this will mean something to I don't know, 4% of our listeners, but I, I'm a all five point Calvinist, you know, I'm reformed theology, tulip all the way. Um, I'm, I wouldn't call myself part of young, restless and reformed just cause I, I don't never, I, I was never part of that scene, you know, the beard, the beard with the craft <laughs> beer and the talking about theology until three in the morning never was part of what I, I do have a beard, but that was <laughs> not when I was becoming reformed. I always saw in my, the way I've interpreted this last five, six years, um, especially with the drift towards Trumpism and authoritarianism and then head lurching into stop the steal and all of that, is that the theology that I have should have functioned as a guardrail against this total nonsense. And so when I look at a lot of my fellow uh, believers, and especially the way they have behaved since the onset of the pandemic and then the election and then stop the steal, I literally look at them as turning to their own sort of theology and giving it the middle finger, um, just to be blunt, that that it's they have completely defied what they have said that they have believed for years. So I see what has happened, I think, as a defiance in many ways of, for a lot of these folks. And here's the difference. I think you see the theology that they had is laying the table for this. Does that make sense? Um, and I, I, I feel like if I, if I had to lay down the disagreement, I would say, I think the theology, that sort of Reformation theology that so many people sort of came into in this young, restless, and reform movement still and should still serve as a guardrail against what we've seen. But I think you see it as having laid the table theologically for what we've seen. I see the cultural table laid. I think where we disagree is on the theological table. <laughs> so that's, so tell me if I'm wrong. No, this is, um, this is really interesting. As you know, I'm a Calvinist too. I teach at Calvin University. I grew up in a, you know, strongly, uh, a Calvinist uh, household. Um, my dad's a theology professor and pastor, and um, uh, you know my favorite class in college was Calvin's Institute. So, so we we, we could talk. Um, <laughs> we can but, we can um, have a long. Co- Sarah, are you ready for this? <laughs> right, right. So, uh, <laughs> no, she is not. Uh, so, um, so you know, I'd want to unpack the theology that you know does it set the table, or you know what what is the operative theology? And and you probably picked up a couple of places in in the book where where I I point to this saying wait a minute, you know, for all their talk of, you know, total depravity and original sin, these guys seem uh, remarkably comfortable with giving a whole lot of unchecked power to a small number of men, right? You know, so, well, so what true. is the operative mm-hmm. theology here? Uh, also, you know, so I, I grew up in the, uh, in the uh, 80s and 90s. And so I was kind of coming of age 
into this young, restless, and reformed. But I was coming out of this isolated, again, kind of Dutch immigrant subculture um, and coming out into the wider world and, and getting my bearings. And when I first heard of John Piper, and when I first heard of um, you know, young, restless, and reformed, I thought, go us, you know, it's, it's Calvinist moment to shine. Um, you know, and I, I was, uh, I thought Calvinists have the best answers and, you know, I was deeply reformed and, and, and we're kind of the smartest Christians, you know, we try not to say that publicly, but, but we know it. Oh, oh, said it publicly all the time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. They, yes. You know, some of us tried to be a little bit more discreet, but, um, uh, so, you know, and then, and then I realized like, as I, as I began to, began to kind of learn more and interact, I realized, there was no place for me. This you know, deeply Calvinist woman who was also an intellectual in those circles. I didn't even identify as a feminist back then, um, but I, I came to see early on that there was much more that was operative here than just appreciation of historical uh, uh, reformed theology. There was much more that was that was um, uh, kind of um, uh, uniting these folks, and, and those things had to do with patriarchy, right? It, it had to do with uh, this particular um, a cultural ideal, not necessarily secular, but it kind of grew up within the religious um, um, culture as well. And I started to pay attention to gatekeeping, right? Who is welcome within this fold? What will get you kicked out of this fold? Um, and, and that's really where I spent a lot of time trying to parse this out. So let's talk about race, you know, how racist can you be and still be welcome as a quote unquote brother in Christ? Um, actually, you can be pretty racist and still be part of the, the club. Um, now, if you go out against complementarianism, sorry, Right. And so, so that was something that I, as a woman who was questioning some of these, particularly some of these gender ideals, realized there was really no space for me, Calvinist though I am in those circles. Um, so I'd really want to push out on the one hand, you're right. You know, um, there, there are, uh, uh, you know, theological commitments that are being, um, denied, set aside, ignored. Absolutely. Um, but there are also that theology kind of morphs, right? And so there are other theological commitments that are driving this. And that's where I think we need to we need to look carefully and 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 get scratch beneath the surface of what are the motivating theological commitments within these different factions and and how does that work? And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turn into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code dispatch at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right, last two questions. One, uh, you just mentioned race. I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about why um, you think that racially it became such a divide, you know, in the book, one of the things I really enjoyed is, you know, every chapter or so you will remind us by putting white in parentheses, you know, like yes. parentheses, white men, parentheses, white evangelicals. Um, because of course there is a huge divide, uh, in evangelicals that are people of color. Why do you think that developed so prominently in the last 50, 70 years? Yeah, yeah, this is a book about white evangelicalism, and uh, it was important to me to try to make whiteness visible in this book, because for many white evangelicals, whiteness is 
absolutely invisible. And it's it's kind of designed as such. So here's what I mean by that. Take something like Christian nationalism or just, you know, the uh, we can even, you know, that's, that's become a, a kind of um, divisive word right now. We can just talk, you know, Christian America, this ideal of, you know, and patriotism, the ideal that so many evangelicals hold to that America was founded as a Christian nation. And that things, you know, uh, were, were great and blessed by God until at some point things got not so good and we have to restore Christian America, right? This is a very prominent motif within conservative evangelicalism. Uh, it's kind of the air uh, many people breathe. Uh, now, take that narrative. It only makes sense if you are a white person. Oh, because when things really got bad, usually that's the 1960s, right? That, that's when things fell apart. So that just that narrative. Now uh, you can you, know, you can talk about God bless America and patriotism and Christian America all day long and never mention race, right? And so when when you try to confront white evangelicals about race, they, many are honestly baffled. Like I'm not thinking in racist terms. I'm not even thinking about race. This is just Christianity. It's just Christian America. And then a lot flows from that. Now take anybody from outside that white Christian America orbit, and it's immediately apparent to them, you know, as a black Christian, like whoa, whoa, let's talk here, you know, uh, about that narrative, about that declension, about what it means to restore Christian America. And race is instantly visible to those on the outside. So one of the things I really try to do in this book is make the whiteness of white evangelicalism visible. And it's easy to do that historically. So you can look at resistance to desegregation, particularly in the South, right? And the importance, uh, the important role that played in, in consolidating evangelical um, uh, political power. Uh, you, you know, you can, you can talk about, um, one of the, one of the things I did in, in reading all of these books on, um, on Christian manhood, they love their heroes, love their heroes. Uh, right. John Wayne is one, Teddy Roosevelt, William Wallace, um, long, long list. What I noticed, uh, when I paid attention is that all of these guys are white men and they include Confederate generals too. Um, and many of them, like Teddy Roosevelt, John Wayne, kind of they they proved their heroism as white men subduing non-white populations. And you know, those are the kinds of things that if you have eyes to see, you can see that. And then one of the things I again tried to do is just make that visible. And I think that's really important because right now conversations are really hard to have about race with white evangelicals who genuinely do not believe they are racist or genuinely do not believe their Christianity has anything to do with racial identity. But history can demonstrate that even though you don't think that, we can see that. And then that can open up the conversations that we really need to be having. You know, one one way I've put it in discussions with people trying to sort of get, get readjust some of the paradigms is, is America really in marked decline if there is more premarital sex, but a lot less Jim Crow. And because essentially what has happened is that the narrative of American moral decline has been attached to largely a, a, a single issue, um, you know, around sex and the sexual revolution. Whereas in many other areas in which if you're going to look at biblical justice, you know, if you're going to look at sort of when the Old Testament prophets would thunder <laughs> You know, we have actually made a lot of, we've, we're not declining, you know, we're like, we're, we're progressing. And so, um, I, I, that's one thing that I think is a really important, it's, it's a very important to broaden the frame when, whenever you hear somebody talk about it and, and, and Christians in particular are almost like addicted to kind of almost like a decline porn, um, that everything is getting horrible fast. Well, it really depends on who you are, uh, doesn't it now? And and is that from a biblical justice frame or is that from a partisan frame? I mean, these are different frames. So anyway, yeah, I, I think, and, and the other thing is to my friends, I'm a white evangelical who are so tired of hearing the phrase white evangelical. Well, here's, and here's a great way to not constantly hear it. Stop being an outlier from all other streams of, Amer of Christianity, okay? And, and if you are an outlier from all other streams of Christianity, well, you got to pretty darn well make a pretty darn good case that you figured out something that all other streams of Christianity haven't figured out. And when it, that case has not been made, anyway... Kristen, I'm sorry. I have uh, ranted like five <laughs> times. I apologize. Amen. Amen. Uh, 
Kristen, I, I think you did a very good job in the book of highlighting that this is a book about white evangelicalism. I look forward to your second book on uh, Christian femininity, but I hope you will consider a third book just focused on the racial issues because I think the history of that is fascinating and how those movements really divide. And and I think something I hear often is like, well, I wish we had more people of color in this church without a whole lot of introspection on how one could make that happen, why that isn't happening, et cetera. Okay, last question. It's really for both of you. Uh, obviously the book is called Jesus and John Wayne, John Wayne being this hero figure from pop culture for many evangelicals, but really Mel Gibson's William Wallace probably plays almost a bigger role as the hero. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I watched Braveheart only several (laughs) dozen times that like movie, like hits like at that peak moment where you're like going to the movies, like the most, uh, in your teenage years. What would be your two pop culture ideals for Christian masculinity that we could see in movies that you would say, ah, this is a portrayal of masculinity that I think Christianity can identify with, that that a Jesus-esque person could identify with? Uh, Kristen, I'm going to start with you because maybe (sighs) you've thought about it more than most. (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh, I, I really should have. Now I'm panicking. Um, it, it's uh, that's so funny. And, and for the record, I tried really hard to fit Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart in a title, and I just couldn't make it work. But that was that would have edged out. You know, John Wayne gets the nice historical grounding, and 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 you know, we went with it. But no, I I absolutely affirm your point there. I tried. Uh, so in fact, uh, I have an op-ed coming out uh, to that effect in a couple of weeks. So, um, uh, let's see. I, I, I'm not, I, I'm terrible at, at recalling like, uh, uh, you know, uh, any, any movies at all. I'm mean, like, it's really, a uh, 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 weakness of mine, but, um, what I will say is the kind of alter ego of the John Wayne masculinity that evangelicals despise is Mr. Rogers, which is really fascinating. And that's something I brought up multiple times in the book. Like Mr. Rogers does not um, fare well in this literature on Christian masculinity. And if you watch the the Mr. Rogers documentary that came out, uh, or even the Tom Hanks uh, fictionalized Uh, version, either way, uh, Mr. Rogers comes out, whether it's documentary or fictional as a living saint. Truly. Absolutely. Right. Right. And deeply religious Presbyterian. And he, you know, and he is a hero to liberal Christians, right? That is the kind of masculine ideal. And, and he is not impressive to conservative evangelicals, you know? So, so John Eldridge will literally say Jesus is a lot more William Wallace than Mr. Rogers. And Mr. Rogers is an embarrassment. You don't want to be a Mr. Rogers. That's emasculated. Uh, and so, so yes, that I'll hold that up as a, you know, maybe, maybe we can meet somewhere in the middle, but Mr. Rogers is a, is a, is a pretty impressive example, I think. So I, I'll, I have one just I thought of immediately man for all seasons, Thomas More. Um, I I, mean, is that a little unfair though, since it's like Thomas More, like, <laughs> right. It's a movie, Sarah. It's Those a- were the paradigms. It was a movie. So, it's like and Jesus. Mr. Rogers, right? Like, and Mr. Yeah, Rogers my is a real Jesus person. Is Jesus. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I guess. I mean, I, I hear your point that it is a portrayal of Thomas More. You're talking about the movie from, uh, what well, I'm going to get the year wrong, but roughly 1952 or something, right? Well, in the movie and the play and the, yeah. You can't just say the script, A Man for All Seasons. It has to be a specific portrayal of Thomas More. Well, the movie. Yeah, the okay, movie, the, the 50s. Yeah. The 50s movie. Whatever. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, so that one. And it's particularly, I think, particularly appropriate now because this is, this is not just, you know, the sacrifice, um, you know, the f- refusal to yield on truth. It's also a defense, you know, of the rule of law itself. I mean, for a classical liberal... Uh, you know, who is ble- who is seeing like, you know, authoritarianism rising, 
to over try to overcome the rule of law. Sarah, we know from our Wednesday Dispatch podcast, I spent we were talking about spending time defending the Constitution itself from the new right. Like this is, I think this is, um, you know, I think that that uh, portrayal is, I, th- I think, incredibly powerful. And the interesting thing, it's so funny, Kristen, you brought up uh, Mr. Rogers. My son saw the movie with my wife. I haven't seen the movie yet. And it really spoke to him. It it really impacted him. He absolutely loved that movie. And I think the thing that is potent about Mr. Rogers is that, you know, if you're talking about the characteristics of Jesus, you know, love your enemies, bless those who persecute you, the fruits of the spirit, kindness, patience, joy, peace. When you're trying to figure out what does that look like in a world that maybe largely doesn't maybe agree with or understand your perspective, but you're tasked with living out your faith in a way that those fruits of the spirit become obvious. It's, that's quite a model. That's quite a model, you know? And when you're a young man, like my son, who completely understands the side of life, he was the def, you know, defensive end on his football team. That side of life is, is instinctive, feels instinctive. And this other side of life feels countercultural seeing that model, I think is, is very, very powerful. Exactly. Well, just to fact check myself very quickly, a man for all seasons, uh, is 1966. Um, and it's Paul Schofield who plays Thomas More. I would ask listeners, I'm curious what folks think between the Paul Schofield, Thomas More, the Jeremy Northam, Thomas More in the Tudors and the Anton Lesser, Thomas More in Wolf Hall, Three of my favorite uh, pieces of pop culture cinema, just overall, and it I, it only occurred to me right now that of course because they're all Thomas More. I love <laughs> fictional portrayals of Thomas More. Um, spoiler: I think mine is Jeremy Northam, but it's close. <laughs> Uh, and if you haven't seen the Tudors, uh, just incredible what they've done with actual history and making it, I mean, totally modern day, uh, culturally relevant. Thank you so much, Kristen Dumay, for joining us again. The book is Jesus and John Wayne. You can get it now in hardback or in June, the paperback is coming. And we'll look forward to your next book on Christian femininity and the book after that, which I just um, asked for, one on race as well. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This is great. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 